0: The name of our podcast, Tech Sequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives. I'm Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie Daigle. Welcome to Tech Sequences. In the fall of 2021, whistleblower Frances Haugen, a former member of the civic integrity team at META, shared a cache of more than 1,300 documents that would come to be collectively known as the Facebook papers. Although META dissolved the civic integrity team in 2020, The pile of papers, memos, emails, and research reports shared with journalists and later on with the U.S. Congress established a shocking, if not unexpected, truth that meta-executives were aware of the real-world harms of its product's features designed to capture and engage users' attention, and yet did little to nothing to avert it. For example, a product decision on algorithm design that dictated the choice of tailored content served up for individual users resulted in the algorithm serving up more content that elicited negative emotional responses such as anger. In an interview on 60 Minutes, Francis Haugen said, quote, Facebook has realized that if they change the algorithm to be safe, people will spend less time on the site, they will click on less ads, they will make less money, end quote. One of the studies she shared detailed how Instagram harms teenage girls adversely impacting their self-image and increasing thoughts of suicide. Since her testimony in Congress, despite the calls for change, no notable new regulations have been imposed on social media companies in the U.S. In May of 2023, the Surgeon General issued a call for urgent action by policymakers, technology companies, researchers, and citizens asking to, quote, gain a better understanding of the full impact of social media use, maximize the benefits, and minimize the harms of social media platforms, and create safer, healthier online environments to protect children, end quote. Yet, despite the heft of information contained in the Facebook papers, it was simply a window into one company at a point in time. In reality, we know very little about the exact impact of product design decisions made by social media companies on mental health, or even incitement to violence. But simply, we do not have standardized processes for evaluating product changes for societal harms. Nor do we have metrics that can adequately measure, trend, compare, and contrast harms across various social media. We also lack mechanisms to separate causation from correlation. Would the emergence of such transparent processes contribute to our collective knowledge and how to build or reform these systems in a way to preserve the positive impacts while mitigating the societal harms?
1: Nathaniel Lubin is a rebooting social media or RSM fellow at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center, a visiting fellow at Cornell University's Digital Life Initiative, and an operator in residence with Laconia Capital's Venture Cooperative. Previously, he was a Langfeld Behavioral Science resident at Princeton's Kahneman Treisman Center for Behavioral Science and Public Policy, a member of the Nations Well Council, and a member of the Council for Responsible Social Media. He has spent his career focused on digital strategy, technology, and politics. Nathaniel founded Fellow Americans, a nonprofit which creates and tests more effective digital content focusing on topics like COVID-19 response, civic participation, and improved social trust while working with some of the largest progressive organizations. Recently, his work has centered on developing novel approaches to improving online discourse, building measurement tools, and combating misinformation. Welcome, Nathaniel. Thanks for having me. So to set the context, can you tell us what got you interested in this topic and why it's important for us to have a mechanism for evaluating harms?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, as we sort of just alluded, I I spent a career in different forms looking at how to make content that was effective for some sort of purpose of persuasion. And uh, so that included political context, but also included a lot of issues related to public interest work, think like COVID-19 education a few years ago. Um, and we find that a lot of the the things that you think might work actually don't. And a lot of the things that get the most engagement are quite different from the things that are the most persuasive. And so that led to um, thinking about how those kinds of approaches could be integrated into product development itself, rather than just the kinds of things people who are using these products might might use. Um, And so uh, in coordination with folks at Harvard and Cornell um, have spent the last couple of years thinking about that and talking to a lot of the experts who have done that kind of work.
1: So in your writings and research, you say applying a public health framework for understanding the Internet would focus not on online information itself, but on how it is generated, spread and consumed via digital platforms. And what do you mean by that?
2: So the the starting point of a lot of the work recently has been thinking about how we could divide harms into two different categories. So there's categories that we call acute harms. These are things like inducements to violence that you referenced earlier. Uh, harassment, other kinds of questions where you can adjudicate that, back. you have to adjudicate that uh, by looking at an actual piece of content itself. If someone, you know, says to shoot somebody, you know, you have to evaluate that directly. And that's quite distinct from what we call structural harms, which are things that happen as a consequence of the aggregate effect of an architectured choice by a platform. And that might happen even if any individual you know, piece of content that someone's exposed to is perfectly fine, right? So some of the current concerns, like the Surgeon General's around, uh, you know, mental health effects, for example, may happen even if uh, you know the, the person who's affected there uh, th- doesn't really realize that any individual part is happening, and and so that requires thinking about populations as a whole instead of individuals. And populations as a whole is a public health framing of this kind of problem. And it turns out that we think a lot of the prior work that has happened to set up public health institutions is quite similar to where we are right now. And so while the, the measurement methods, the ways we might evaluate it could look different, there's a lot of value there in considering both what worked and what didn't in prior public health uh, framings of problems.
1: So just to drill down a little bit on acute versus structural, if would a reasonable example of that, although highly simplified be, that, you know, showing uh, a picture of a slim woman, there is exactly nothing wrong with seeing a picture of a slim woman. Um, so a, a content moderator is not going to say that's, that's material not to be shown. But, you know, for instance, continuously being shown only pictures of slim women in say magazines is more of a sort of a structural challenge insofar as it does, it does have an impact in, in terms of body image.
2: That's right. I mean, that, that could be an example. I think the, the the other part of this is it's a quite high bar, the way we're thinking about this, right? So most things are going to be okay. That might be a case where it's still okay. Um, but if the aggregate effect of of repeated exposure like that was to measurably reduce a, a, a metric that we agree is really important, mental health for kids, for example, then yes, that would be that would be an example of that. And maybe, you know, the the, you know, social science researchers often talk about comparison, which I think is what you're alluding to there. And so, you know, if someone is a 14-year-old who sees they weren't invited to a party, right, that individual case, that happens, right, that's going to happen in life. But if the if the the purpose of the platform in, in aggregate effect is to make that kind of thing repeatedly happen, um, you wouldn't look at that by evaluating, you know, a thousand individual party examples. You would look at you know, a, a population of people who use the platform versus a population of people who didn't, and and seeing what the you know comparison is there,
0: right? So still teasing out this structural harms versus acute harms, where does disinformation, misinformation, even conspiracy theories fit in? How would you characterize those?
2: Yeah, so I think they're they're uh, intersecting with both of these. Um, there are certain kinds of content-based conspiracies where you might want to have an acute evaluation. And the intervention for an acute evaluation would be some sort of content moderation, right? So this is not arguing that content moderation is not important. We think it's very important. You know, if some if someone is uh, you know, if there's if there's a conspiracy theory that is pushing, you know, there's a cabal of uh I won't go to details
0: shipping, <laughs> blood drinking. Right. That,
2: that, that induces someone to shoot up a, a pizza parlor. Uh, that might be, you know, demanding of a, a response. Um, there are other kinds of, of misinformation that are, or, dis- or disinformation that are operating, you know, above a, a, a threshold where I think it would be appropriate to do a content based intervention. Right. And we could think of all kinds of topics like that. Um, And the point is not, is, is that if you do this kind of an intervention, you don't, you don't have to, um, you know, engage with a, a content based reduction in, uh, in reach or, or or banning. You're instead thinking about the architecture itself and saying, Hey, we have a choice about what kind of set of promotions to, to put out there. You know, that will have effects in terms of what's seen. But, you know, rather than thinking about metrics like, you know, direct, misinformation promotion, we could say, hey, is the effect of this thing that it is pushing society in ways that we think are good? Are people happier? Are they more educated? Are they more um, socially cohesive? That might be upstream of any particular evaluation. So it's a combination of both is the answer.
0: Earlier, you said you made a distinction between user engagement and persuasion. And in my head, they're somewhat in intertwined because in order to persuade somebody you have to engage them so what is the distinction in your mind between user engagement and persuasion particularly when it comes to harms
2: yeah um so you just framed it very similar the way that i would which is um you know if you if you want to persuade someone they have to consume the thing they have to see the thing right so that that is yeah. where the engagement part of this comes in it's a threshold question um, In most of the advertising worlds particularly in social media though those are conflated much more right you say if you get high reach and you know your picture of Coke is is seen by people that's good and generally it, you know to first approximation does translate to you know some sale goal because of because of the brand recognition. That's really not true for public interest kinds of content, right, where you just say the the mere fact of of having seen exposure to something does not say whether someone is persuaded by that. And in fact, um, and research that we've done to first approximation, it's it's literally a zero correlation or even a negative correlation. That is to say if you if you try two different messages about COVID education, the one that gets the higher engagement rate very often is less persuasive about what you're trying to do than the one that gets more. And we think that's because, you know, generally speaking, these algorithms are selecting for people who are already agreeing with what what you're trying to put out there. That's the function of it. So the thing that does is 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 picking up there is is not a signal for whether information transfer is happening. It's whether agreement is already present.
0: So these algorithms are really already geared towards confirmation bias is what you're saying.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 selecting for people who are already in agreement is what I would say. So so. A confirmation bias would be would be reinforcing a thing that you already believe that's true but th- th- you know there's just not there's not new information being transmitted very often when that's happening
1: so how do we turn this around to to address things at a larger scale if you say that you know content men- moderation is necessary for addressing the acute challenges what what is a good approach to d- addressing the structural ones
2: yeah so that's that's the the project we've been trying to to frame here is how would one actually do that it's obviously a very hard question and it's' You know, there have been, even in the last week, there have been academic studies that have come out from, from Facebook in the 2020 cycle. Um, we've sort of been starting from first principles here of what would it take to try to answer a question where there is a, really a lot of public consensus on the importance. So think kids' mental health, which is, you know, everyone agrees basically is if, if it was true that that these platforms are making mental health for kids worse, that would be a, a societal problem worthy of, of significant intervention, it's bipartisan. And so, rather than um, coming at this after the fact, the thought the thought is, you know, these platforms are already doing holdouts and A/B testing all the time when they produce when um, uh, they actually develop these products, when they are um, putting them together, and we could include some of these public interest metrics alongside the growth metrics that they are already producing. Some evidence that these platforms do this circumstantially already. Um, there's cases for that. But so far as we know, it's not consistent, it's not systematic. And it's certainly not reported externally, uh, outside of, you know, leaks or subpoenas or something like that. And so that creates an incentive for them not to do it in a way that is comparable, We even see this, you know, in some of the recent cases where the comparisons are to hold out groups that are reverse chronological, only not to other choices that could have made, you know, that for very limited time horizons therefore limited questions in the product what we're talking about is something much much broader it would be saying hey let's let's look at you know the aggregate changes on the entirety of a plot for products over a quarter or over a year or over six months whatever timeline you know longer timeline more comprehensive and start setting benchmarks where you say hey we you know you can make changes most changes you make are going to be fine but you know if it makes this this metric on mental health in aggregate worse, you have to roll back, you have to change it. And so that gives product creators, product leaders, you know, a choice to interpret how to respond to that, right? They're not saying this is the change you need to make. You're saying, make the consequence of any changes you make in total, not make this metric worse, right? So it it sort of gives the the product teams their own tools to choose how to interpret that or what to do in response, but having hard benchmarks that are evaluated by third parties. The other part of it is, and lots of smart people have worked at these companies, and, and others who are working now, uh, you know, know that the, you know the, these effects are very small, and they're very small largely because they're evaluated usually over the course of the entire population of products, and that's a problem for this as well because we know that there are very small populations that have disproportionate effects, and so the second part of it is in advance prior to actually running these experiments is identifying populations that are much smaller and that are where there could be acute challenges. So in the case of acute mental health harms for teens, that might be, you know, high usage of certain profiles, certain ages, whatever. Not looking at, you know, the entire user base of Instagram, we'll be looking at, you know, a much, much narrower group. And in, th- and in that case, you know, the, the place where you'd have the highest effect size still shows no problem, which, you know, to be clear, in most cases, I think you would show no problem, then you'd have a lot more confidence that the product is, is acceptable. And this is quite similar to what we do for many, many other consumer products elsewhere, right? If you are looking at pharmaceutical drugs, or car seats, or whatever, you know, we, we subject those things to similar kinds of evaluations before putting them publicly
0: that's been a a really great argument made by a ton of folks saying that look these we've done this with other industries for example in healthcare pharmaceuticals where a manufacturer an automobile manufacturer for example is responsible for changes that they they make to their products and they're they're responsible for metrics you know dealing with metrics measuring them reporting on them I think you're saying the same thing um but you are you advocating that we should have you know congress should pass a bill for example uh to to make this into laws that these uh social media companies are now responsible for the the design changes that they make to the products and how these design changes may be responsible for acute or structural harms is that what you're proposing
2: yeah i do think we're going to need a law to that effect and you know in in the eu and the uk they're considering versions of this right now they're a little farther ahead of us um, Congress is considering a couple of laws right now, which, you know, try to accomplish some similar things in different ways, right? So um the Kids Online Safety Act, for example, just out of committee this past week, time of escaping. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of the current legal approaches in this country are about restrictions to access for kids rather than evaluation of that. Um, you know, I think maybe below 13, that's maybe appropriate in certain cases, but but generally speaking, I'm of the I'm of the view that we should be you know not restricting access to things, we should make things safer. And uh you know, this kind of evaluation I think is is important. You know, the 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 piece in the Atlantic we published in this previously made the comparison to, you know, the 19th century um Broad Street pump example, which is where yeah. sort of modern sanitation came in. And I, th- I think that's a, a good comparison point to where we are now. Um you know, we we don't know what we don't know in a lot of these cases, because we haven't built the infrastructure for evaluation even to be possible. And that's the first step, we need to know what these effects are looking like so that we can then start having restrictions on places where there are real problems. And, you know, we can't over prescribe what the solutions are until we actually have a better sense of where the problems are actually being created. And so, Yes, it would be great if, if big product leaders would do that because they choose to. And there's definitely people in these companies who are doing that. So we want to lift those people up uh, and maybe some of the new cohort of smaller companies that don't have a lot of the same uh, incentives might do that more. But it's hard to imagine that, you know, big companies that have real incentives not to do this are going to do it without a lot of support and, and pushing, including from, from legal channels.
1: Your your statement that you don't want to reduce access, you want to improve safety, really caught my ear, and and I'm sort of chewing on, like, what's the difference then between movies which have age ratings because they're all about the content, and you know you can pretty much publish, maybe not anything, but you can, you can put a pretty wide range of, um, gory movies and whatnot, um, and then restricted by age. But I think that part of your point, going back to the the pump example, is if people have the expectation. That, you know they can access certain things that are they can access stuff and and have an expectation that it is safe i mean that seems to be the distinction so um i'm not going to sit in a car these days and expect that this there will be no seat belts or that the seat belts will fail i expect that to be available um i'm not going to worry about you know filling my water bottle at the airport um because i'm confident that this is safe water so if I'm understanding you correctly, rather than putting age ratings on, you know, different content in or, or you know, user group ratings on different content in, in these online services, you're trying to build a world where we can understand this is what you do or do not do in order for this content to be safe.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are cases where age restrictions could be one of the tools in this toolbox. But, you know, for example, proposals that say, you know, under 18 social media is banned, which has been put out there in certain cases. Like, I'm, I am I think that kind of a structure, and it's usually paired, in fact, with a parent approval structure, right? So it puts the burden on parents to decide what what is appropriate. I don't think those kinds of interventions are, are going to be effective, A, but B, even if they were, it, it sort of puts parents in an impossible spot, right? Parents are the face of a lot of these challenges. And, you know, apparent understanding what the effect of a massive, you know, X billion dollar company's product changes, particularly with something that's as, as dynamic as this is an unfair fight, right? And so your parents have an obligation and responsibility to make good choices, of course, but the baselines should be different than, than that particular setup, right? So, um, you know, if, if a product is inherently you know, creates a high likelihood or a reasonable likelihood of these kinds of challenges for kids, then there should be changes to that product upstream of any decision by a parent. And then a parent should also have an obligation to choose whether even that upstream version is acceptable. And maybe it's not for certain cases, but, but those are not the same underlying question. And I think they're very often conflated in the current political dynamic.
0: We're uh, in in an era where social media is controlled by a few Uh, billionaires, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, back in his day, uh, Jack Dorsey, now Elon Musk. Um, Musk, for example, just two days ago reinstated Kanye West's, um, you know, account. And there's a lot of critics who say that the problem really is the fact that this is based on an attention economy. In other words, this is um, surveillance capitalism. It's all being underwritten by you know, programmatic advertising. And therefore, these algorithms are really incented to engage greater user content, you know, have more um, content that is a little bit caustic because that brings more eyeballs. So the problem in their mind is it's surveillance capitalism, it's a fact that these are being controlled not by necessarily product teams making decisions, you know, based on metrics, but sometimes by very eccentric billionaires and wherever their fancy lies in that day. What do you say to to those critics?
2: It's a good question. I mean, I think we we so there's a long section in this in this full academic paper that talks about some of the contrast between the framing that we have and some of the um surveillance versions of this. Um, they're intersecting right some of the some of the ways that these might impact people are related to each other i i think the 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 take that we are we are putting forward here is that um the way that that would manifest as a problem would sh- should be measurable using the kinds of metrics that we are talking about right so if your concern with with a product is that they're stealing data and that data has a sort of autonomy or or personal property dynamic, that can be regulated and should be regulated in the way that we do data in many other contexts. But if your concern is the advertising model as such, then I don't personally think that's a reason to restrict someone. I think we have a free country and society that sort of respects these different models and um, there should be a pretty high burden high burden to those kinds of restrictions. The high burden, in my view, should be exactly the kind of evaluation that we're proposing here, right? And that is namely, is there a material impact on a population that is substantial enough that it justifies restrictions? And if it did, then, you know, that would show up as saying, hey, you can do this, but you can't, you know, the, the, the restrictions are meaningful. They have teeth in certain ways, and those would change the practices. If you can't run your advertising product in a way that works at all, subject to that, well, then sure, that would mean that, you know, there would be a more, a more significant restriction. In practice, though, I don't think that's what's would be likely. It would, you know, it might at the margins reduce engagement a bit or or make it less profitable a little bit, but it wouldn't be of the type that would say, hey, this is impossible altogether. That's my own view of what should happen. Um, you know, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg wakes up in the morning thinking about how they can undermine this. I think they are quite genuine in wanting to make a good product that people enjoy and use. Um, you know, I think that's not the same thing as saying the incentives are perfectly aligned to make that actually happen in all cases. And that's where we're saying, you know, hey, they have an incentive to, to an interest in growing their product and, and and making money. That's fine. You know, Congress's incentives should be to protect the citizens of the country. And this is a way to do that.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking of the tobacco companies that were probably having the same discussions 40 or 50 years ago where, you know, they knew and, and it wasn't publicly known all the dangers associated with smoking tobacco. Um, but they they probably didn't view themselves as handing out cancer sticks and killing people so much as producing something that people enjoyed. Um, and it's and it's taken regulation and it's taken decades of regulation to try to um address that. And I'm saying that at a point where Canada is just introducing now individual cigarettes will bear a warning on them saying that these things are dangerous. So how do we, you know, what's what's your idea of a of a, an ideal timeline? to address some of this. I mean, presumably not the decades that it's taken um the tobacco industry. Um and you know, what does what does good look like?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the cigarette example is is tough because it's hard to point to a benefit from cigarettes, whereas I do think these products you know, generally do have a lot of benefit right on YouTube oh we... oh
1: oh oh I I'm gonna have to disagree with you there if you throw your brain back five or six decades right it was a social thing right I mean it was people people enjoyed them um people still enjoy them I and mean, I appreciate that it's not doesn't feel quite the same thing but but you know we have to acknowledge that we're we're on the other end of Okay. Of the Fair. Of the timeline there, Fair <laughs> good
0: thinking of uh, the uh, Mad Men episodes with pre- pregnant women yeah. sipping cocktails and <laughs> you know puffing on cigarettes.
2: <laughs> Nine yep. out of ten do- doctors or dentists or whatever. Um, yeah, yes uh, <laughs> Okay, so I, I uh, back up. I I, I won't uh, pretend to be a, a cigarette expert here, but I I guess what I'm saying is, um, I think we should acknowledge that there are, there are you know. Products like YouTube, where you can be, you know get an education about a topic you never had for free, like that's an incredible service, and we don't want to yeah. make those things be undermined by virtue of legitimate and important protections that we have. So I, I think to your question of what what's what's the timeline and what should be next, you know, there are step one would be access to better data, right? So you don't we don't say make any changes, we don't say make any any any, any rules. In fact, we shouldn't do that until we you know already have some of this stuff baked already. Um, but step one is getting some of that data. And that requires some consensus about what the metrics actually are in order to do evaluation on. So that's the work that I'm we're going to be working on in the fall and to next year. And and would love, you know, support from your listeners or you guys or anyone who's interested in that conversation. Um, there are existing protocols on a couple of these topics, you know, like mental health that we want to draw upon, right? We're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. It's saying let's get those those uh, benchmarks and those those systems to be the foundation for this and then get doctors and experts in those fields to be the ones that to, to help implement it and look for cases where that kind of thing can be done voluntarily sooner. Uh, and then uh, we are having conversations with some of the you know regulators and other folks around, you know, how could that be implemented as a part of some of these larger considerations to enable that kind of data collection to start happening sooner. I think that would be a massive, massive step forward. Um, And I also think once you start having some of those kinds of data sets out there, um, you know, companies are going to want to respond to that, even if they don't have a a stronger incentive than that to do so. Um, Our thought is that merely having those kinds of design parameters included would probably do a lot to solve this problem. And so um, I don't think there's a necessarily a a huge timeline for that kind of a thing to happen. If the right folks were were interested, of course, that's a big if. In terms of legislation to actually pass something like this in this country, that's probably longer. uh, But, you know, there's been a lot of positive interest around at least for the kids' mental health part of this sooner.
0: The the whole idea that you ought to be sharing that these companies ought to be sharing data with the outside world, at least with the regulators or even, you know, civic, Um, institutions, uh, third-party civic institutions, uh, is a great one, and setting metrics so that we all know what we're looking at. You know, what is the problem? Are we, if we're defining it, and if we're using a particular metric, that metric should apply um, to, you know, meta, should apply to Twitter, should apply to the others. That's very powerful. Um, But in terms of, in today's political environment, certainly there is at least (laughs) the Democrats and the Republicans agree that something ought to be done, right, with social media. The problem has been what ought to be done, right? So the Republicans feel that there is a conservative bias uh, in social media. The the, uh, the Democrats decry the fact that some of the content moderation uh, teams have been taken away, and, and they don't think that there's been a Bias against conservative voices. So we're in this fraught political environment. What are what are the chances? What are the what is the probability? Or at least in your conversations with regulators, what have you found in terms of bipartisan support for for passing a bill like this?
2: I agree that there is uh, a consensus on the importance of this, and quite a lot, lot of disagreement about what to do in response. And that often gets conflated. I think there are a few areas of really strong consensus though and so i think we need to start in those places um the kids mental health one is a reason why we keep talking about that is that's the that's the one where where there is the most consensus in my view and and sort of parents being the face of that as opposed to some other political group i think there is quite a lot of agreement on that i also think there is quite a lot of agreement around these transparency metrics the thing is transparency should not be its own goal. It's transparency for another purpose, like understanding the effect on kids, right? And so that's where I think there's the most potential for progress. And a big motivation for this project has been saying, I don't think it will be effective for us to try to regulate speech in some direct path. It's also probably unconstitutional. Um, but even if it even if it was viable, um, you would definitely have exactly the fight you're describing here between Uh, let's say, one side's uh, more scientific approach and one side's more ideological approach from my own perspective, Um, saying, hey, there's mental health harms, there's health harms that are quantifiable, independent of any particular speech, and we should try to push people towards things that don't hurt them. I think that's an approach that could be much more bipartisan than saying uh, let's go after the speech itself um there's still many questions there's still at least including uh, legal questions, but it's a much different conversation and I think that's one where where there's much more potential um, I think the Surgeon General's call is actually a, a a similar point to that, which is saying if you know if this long crisis is is worthy of our intervention, and these are products that are at least originally and nominally about bringing people together and fostering connection. Let's actually check the work on that and see if it, that's actually happening, right? And how we do that—how you know what, what methods—is complicated, but can we get agreement starting there that that's actually an important question? And if it is, that leads us down a path that's that's you know, a, a pretty clear research direction. Um, I think that could actually happen. Um, you know, there's there's proposals in Congress right now. Uh, and, uh, Nate Persily and some others in Stanford, the, uh, the PATA, the Transparency Act, I think could be a foundation for some of the research methods for this. You know, the proposal that we're putting forward here is a little bit different in terms of what kinds of data to be collecting. But there's a very commonality there around saying, hey, third party academics and researchers need to be the ones to scope what kinds of questions are worthy of happening, and they need to have access to the data, independent of what is just granted to them from these companies, right? You can't have someone creating their own homework and telling you that it, it's fine. Um, those kinds of principles are central to this, and then we need to we, we we could narrow what they do research over to these areas where there's consensus, but they need to be, you know, robust enough that there's an opportunity to really do evaluation.
0: Just a quick note for our listeners: when you mentioned PADA, that is the platform. Um, uh, Accountability and Transparency Act that was introduced uh, in December of 2022 by um, Senator Chris Coons, De- uh, Democrat of Delaware, who's the chair of the Judiciary Subcommittee, and Senators Rob Portman, Republican, Amy Klobuchar, um, Democrat, and Bill Cassidy, um, Republican of Louisiana. And it was really intended to increase transparency. So what has, what has happened with that bill?
2: uh i i believe it's introduced i'm not an expert on the the machinations of the latest committee discussions but i believe it's moving forward um i think there's been a, a lot of support and interest in it definitely bipartisan as you just described so um i'm optimistic that those kinds of things could move forward that that that, that particular proposal has a, a credentialing process for the i believe the nsf is the one who um helps you know say which which researchers are able to get access and there's a procedure for that to happen, which is great. It's sort of the kind of a version of what we we're talking about before, where there's a, you know, before we decide what to do, let's get access to some of the, the questions and we can get evidence for it. And so I think that's, that's the right, the right approach for this.
1: So clearly there's a lot more work to be done and and you got, you know, exciting opportunities ahead, but um, just sort of to wrap our discussion up, what are the key things that you would like our listeners to take away or... In what way can any of our listeners help?
2: Well, I think there is a lot more interest in this kind of approach than there was even a year ago or two years ago. Um, We mentioned earlier in in the discussion here that um, in the last week there've been four studies that have come out from, from Facebook and there's about another 12 that are coming that sort of give a particular snapshot in time of a particular data set. And there's questions now about what we can infer or not infer from that. I think what our larger community with listeners here should take from that is this research is possible, and we just need a lot more of it in ways that are tied to these larger questions. So, um, you know, I think they can call their congressman or whoever and and sort of engage with these approaches to to support some of these, these pieces of legislation that are out there. But I think the the more operative one, particularly for an expert group, is to participate in some of these conversations about metrics, right? There's really not a prior answer about what we should, in a kind of capital S sense, consider. And, um, you know, the, the the things that I've been thinking about have been these health questions as well as measures of social trust, which is the other kind of counterpoint to this around social cohesion, and I think is my answer um. To some of the misinformation work, right? You could say, "Hey, the you know the, the misinformation is a problem, but you know there's an upstream thing here, which is if society is more disconnected from each other, if you don't trust your peers and and people ne- you know near you, that is itself a problem. It might be much more of a, a tractable problem. Lots of lots of evidence going back decades that that is uh, creating issues, and you could actually evaluate that using very standard methods that exist right now. Okay, that's my answer to this. Uh, you you two probably would have uh, your own answers about what things you think are, are worthy that might be just as good or better. And uh, that's a conversation that I think we need to have here around, you know, how can we, how can we triage that? How should we prioritize that? Because it's going to be hard to do this kind of evaluation and we should put our energy where there's the most uh, substantive as well as political consensus of its importance.
1: That's great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this Tech Sequences podcast. We are Leslie Vagel and Alexa Rod. You can reach us by email, techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. Tech Sequences. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.